Chapter 5, Part 4 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Mary Maxwell. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart by Alexander Dumas. On the following day, everything fell back into the usual routine and William Douglas resumed his duties as carver. Breakfast passed without Mary's having learned anything of George's departure or Ruth Finn's arrival. On rising from the table, she went to her window. Scarcely was she there than she had heard the sound of a horn echoing on the shores of the lake, and saw a little troop of horsemen halt while waiting for the boat to come and take those who were going to the castle. The distance was too great for Mary to recognize any of the visitors, but it was clear from the signs of intelligence exchanged between the little troop and the inhabitants of the fortress that the newcomers were her enemies. This was a reason why the queen, in her uneasiness, should not lose sight for a moment of the boat which was going to fetch them. She saw only two men get into it, and immediately it put off again for the castle. As the boat drew nearer, Mary's presentiments changed to real fears, for in one of the men coming towards her, she thought she made out Lord Lindsay of Byers, the same who, a week before, had brought her to prison. It was indeed he himself, as usual in a steel helmet without a visor, which allowed one to see his coarse face designed to express strong passions, and his long black beard with gray hairs here and there, which covered his chest, his person was protected, as if it were in a time of war, with his faithful suit of armor, formerly polished and well-gilded, but which, exposed without ceasing to rain and mist, was now eaten up with rust. He had slung on his back, much as one slings a quiver, a broadsword, so heavy that it took two hands to manage it, and so long that while the hilt reached the left shoulder, the point reached the right spur. In a word, he was still the same soldier, brave to rashness, but brutal to insolence, recognizing nothing but right and force, and always ready to use force when he believed himself in the right. The queen was so much taken up with the sight of Lord Lindsay of Byers that it was only just as the boat reached the shore that she glanced at his companion and recognized Robert Melville. This was some consolation, for whatever might happen, she knew that she should find in him, if not ostensible, at least secret sympathy. Besides, his dress, by which one could have judged him equally with Lord Lindsay, was a perfect contrast to his companions. It consisted of a black velvet doublet with a cap and feather of the same hue fastened to it with a gold clasp. His only weapon, offensive or defensive, was a little sword, which he seemed to wear rather as a sign of his rank than for attack or defense. As to his features and his manners, they were in harmony with his peaceful appearance. His pale countenance expressed both acuteness and intelligence. His quick eye was mild, and his voice insinuating. His figure slight and a little bent by habit rather than by years, since he was but forty-five at this time, indicated an easy and conciliatory character. However, the presence of this man of peace, who seemed entrusted with watching over the demon of war, could not reassure the queen, and as to get to the landing place in front of the great door of the castle, the boat had just disappeared behind the corner of a tower. She told Mary Seaton to go down that she might try to learn what cause brought Lord Lindsay to Lochleven, well knowing that with the force of character with which she was endowed, she need know this cause but a few minutes beforehand, whatever it might be, 
to give her countenance that calm and that majesty which she had always found to influence her enemies. Left alone, Mary let her glance stray back to the little house in Kinross, her sole hope, but the distance was too great to distinguish anything. Besides, its shutters remained closed all day, and seemed to open only in the evening, like the clouds, which having covered the sky for a whole morning, scatter at last to reveal to the lost sailor a solitary star. She had remained no less motionless, her gaze always fixed on the same object, when she was drawn from this mute contemplation by the step of Mary Seaton. "'Well, darling?' asked the queen, turning round. "'Your majesty is not mistaken,' replied the messenger. "'It really was Sir Robert Melville and Lord Lindsay. "'But there came yesterday with Sir William Douglas a third ambassador, "'whose name, I am afraid, will still be more odious to your majesty "'than either of the two I have just pronounced.' "'You deceive yourself, Mary,' the queen answered. "'Neither the name of Melville nor that of Lindsay is odious to me. "'Melville's, on the contrary, is, in my present circumstances, "'one of those which I have most pleasure in hearing.' As to Lord Lindsay's, it is doubtless not agreeable to me, but it is none the less an honorable name, always borne by men rough and wild, it is true, but incapable of treachery. Tell me, then, what is this name, Mary, for you see I am calm and prepared. Alas, madam, returned Mary, calm and prepared as you may be, collect all your strength, not merely to hear this name uttered, but also to receive in a few minutes the man who bears it, for this name is that of Lord Ruthven. Mary Seaton had spoken truly, and this name had a terrible influence upon the queen, for scarcely had it escaped the young girl's lips than Mary Stuart uttered a cry, and turning pale as if she were about to faint, caught hold of the window ledge. Mary Seaton, frightened at the effect produced by this fatal name, immediately sprang to support the queen, but she, stretching one hand towards her while she laid the other on her heart, "'It is nothing,' she said. "'I shall be better in a moment.' Yes, Mary, yes, as you said, it is a fatal name, and mingled with one of my most bloody memories. What such men are coming to ask of me must be dreadful indeed. But no matter, I shall soon be ready to receive my brother's ambassadors, for doubtless they are sent in his name. You, darling, prevent their entering, for I must have some minutes to myself. You know me, it will not take me long. With these words the queen withdrew with a firm step to her bedchamber. Mary Seaton was left alone, admiring that strength of character which made of Mary Stuart, in all other respects so completely womanlike, a man in the hour of danger. She immediately went to the door to close it with the wooden bar that one passed between two iron rings, but the bar had been taken away, so that there was no means of fastening the door from within. In a moment she heard someone coming up the stairs, and guessing from the heavy, echoing step that it must be Lord Lindsay, she looked round her once again to see if she could find something to replace the bar, and finding nothing within reach, she passed her arm through the rings, resolved to let it be broken rather than allow anyone to approach her mistress before it suited her. Indeed, hardly had those who were coming up reached the landing than someone knocked violently, and a harsh voice cried, "'Come, come, open the door, open directly!' And by what right, said Mary Seaton, am I ordered thus insolently to open the Queen of Scotland's door? By the right of the ambassador of the regent to enter everywhere in his name. I am Lord Lindsay, and I have come to speak to Lady Mary Stuart. To be an ambassador, answered Mary Seaton, is not to be exempted from having oneself announced in visiting a woman, and much more a queen. And if this ambassador is, as he says, Lord Lindsay, 
He will await his sovereign's leisure, as every Scottish noble would do in his place. By St. Andrew, cried Lord Lindsay, open, or I will break in the door. Do nothing to it, my lord, I entreat you, said another voice, which Mary recognized as Melville's. Let us rather wait for Lord Ruthven, who is not yet ready. Upon my soul, cried Lindsay, shaking the door, I shall not wait a second. Then, seeing that it resisted, why did you tell me then, you scamp, Lindsay went on, speaking to the steward, that the bar had been removed? It is true, replied he. Then, returned Lindsay, with what is this silly wench securing the door? With my arm, my lord, which I have passed through the rings, as the Douglas did for King James I, at a time when Douglases had dark hair instead of red, and were faithful instead of being traitors. Since you know your history so well, replied Lindsay in a rage, you should remember that that weak barrier did not hinder Graham, that Catherine Douglas's arm was broken like a willow wand, and that James I was killed like a dog. But you, my lord, responded the courageous young girl, ought also to know the ballad that is still sung in our time. Now on Robert Graham, the king's destroyer's shame, to Robert Graham clings shame who destroyed our king. Mary, cried the queen, who had overheard this altercation from her bedroom. Mary, I command you to open the door directly. Do you hear? Mary obeyed, and Lord Lindsay entered, followed by Melville, who walked behind him, with slow steps and bent head. Arrived in the middle of the second room, Lord Lindsay stopped, and looking round him, Well, where is she, then? he asked, and has she not already kept us waiting long enough outside without making us wait again inside? Or does she imagine that, despite these walls and these bars, she is always queen? Patience, my lord, murmured Sir Robert. You see that Lord Ruthven has not come yet, and since we can do nothing without him, let us wait. Let wait who will, replied Lindsay, inflamed with anger, but it will not be I, and wherever she may be, I shall go and seek her. With these words, he made some steps toward Mary Stuart's bedroom, but at the same moment the queen opened the door, without seeming moved either at the visit or at the insolence of the visitors, and so lovely and so full of majesty that each, even Lindsay himself, was silent at her appearance, and as if in obedience to a higher power, bowed respectfully before her. I fear I have kept you waiting, my lord, said the queen, without replying to the ambassador's salutation otherwise than by a slight inclination of the head. But a woman does not like to receive even enemies without having spent a few minutes over her toilet. It is true that men are less tenacious of ceremony, added she, throwing a significant glance at Lord Lindsay's rusty armor and soiled and pierced doublet. Good day, Melville, she continued, without paying attention to some words of excuse stammered by Lindsay. Be welcome in my prison, as you were in my palace, for I believe you as devoted to the one as to the other. Then, turning to Lindsay, who was looking interrogatively at the door, impatient as he was for Ruthven to come, you have there, my lord, she said, pointing to the sword he carried over his shoulder, a faithful companion, though it is a little heavy. Did you expect in coming here to find enemies against whom to employ it? In the contrary case, it is a strange ornament for a lady's presence. But no matter, my lord, I am too much of a steward to fear the sight of a sword, even if it were naked, I warn you. It is not out of place here, madam, replied Lindsay, bringing it forward and leaning his elbow on its cross hilt. 
for it is an old acquaintance of your family. Your ancestors, my lord, were brave and loyal enough for me not to refuse to believe what you tell me. Besides, such a good blade must have rendered them good service. Yes, madam, yes, surely it has done so, but that kind of service the kings do not forgive. He for whom it was made was Archibald Bell the Cat, and he girded himself with it the day when, to justify his name, he went to seize in the very tent of King James the Third, your grandfather, his unworthy favorites, Cochrane, Hummel, Leonard, and Torpichin, whom he hanged on Louder Bridge with the halters of his soldiers' horses. It was also with this sword that he slew at one blow, in the lists, Spens of Kilspindi, who had insulted him in the presence of King James the Fourth, counting on the protection his master accorded him, and which did not guard him against it any more than his shield, which it split in two. At his master's death, which took place two years after the defeat of Flodden, on whose battlefield he left his two sons and two hundred warriors of the name of Douglas, it passed into the hands of the Earl of Angus, who drew it from the scabbard when he drove the Hamiltons out of Edinburgh, and that so quickly and completely that the affair was called the sweeping of the streets. Finally, your father, James V, saw it glisten in the fight of the bridge over the Tweed, when Buckluche, stirred up by him, wanted to snatch him from the guardianship of the Douglases, and when eighty warriors of the name of Scott remained on the battlefield. But, said the queen, how is it that this weapon, after such exploits, has not remained as a trophy in the Douglas family? No doubt the Earl of Angus required a great occasion to decide him to renounce in your favor this modern Excalibur. History of Scotland by Sir Walter Scott, the Abbot, Historical Part. Yes, no doubt, madam, it was upon a great occasion, replied Lindsay, in spite of the imploring signs made by Melville and this will have at least the advantage of the others in being sufficiently recent for you to remember. It was ten days ago, on the battlefield of Carberry Hill, madam, when the infamous Bothwell had the audacity to make a public challenge in which he defied to single combat whomsoever would dare to maintain that he was not innocent of the murder of the king, your husband. I made him answer then, I the third, that he was an assassin and as he refused to fight with the two others under the pretext that they were only barons, I presented myself in my turn, I who am an earl and lord. It was on that occasion that the noble Earl of Morton gave me this good sword to fight him to the death, so that if he had been a little more presumptuous or a little less cowardly, dogs and vultures would be eating at this moment the pieces that, with the help of this good sword, I should have carved for them from that traitor's carcass. At these words, Mary Seton and Robert Melville looked at each other in terror, for the events that they recalled were so recent that they were, so to speak, still living in the Queen's heart. But the Queen, with incredible impassibility and a smile of contempt on her lips, It is easy, my lord, said she, to vanquish an enemy who does not appear in the lists. However, believe me, if Mary had inherited the Stuarts' sword, as she has inherited their scepter, your sword, long as it is, would yet have seemed to you too short. But as you have only to relate to us now, my lord, what you intended doing, and not what you have done, think it fit that I bring you back to something of more reality, for I do not suppose you have given yourself the trouble to come here purely and simply to add a chapter to the little treatise Des Rotomontades Espagnoles by M. de Brantome.
"'You are right, madam,' replied Lindsay, reddening with anger. "'And you would already know the object of our mission "'if Lord Ruthven did not so ridiculously keep us waiting. "'But,' he added, "'have patience. "'The matter will not be long now, for here he is.' "'Indeed, at that moment they heard steps "'mounting the staircase and approaching the room, "'and at the sound of these steps the queen, "'who had borne with such firmness Lindsay's insults, "'grew so perceptibly paler that Melville, who did not take his eyes off her, put out his hands towards the armchair as if to push it towards her, but the queen made a sign that she had no need of it and gazed at the door with apparent calm. Lord Ruthven appeared. It was the first time she had seen the son since Rizzio had been assassinated by the father. End of chapter 5, part 4